This week we're continuing in our series in Ephesians. We're approximately halfway through Ephesians. Um, a few months ago I spoke to you from Colossians, actually, not Ephesians, but Colossians. Colossians and Ephesians are like twin brothers. If you read them side by side, you'd be like, oh, there's a lot of overlap here. But I spoke to you from Colossians about this mystery. It talks about this mystery of the gospel. And that in Colossians, it starts at the beginning talking about how there's this mystery that God is in Christ, that, that Jesus is God, and that God took on a human form, and that's what, who Jesus is. But also that Christ is in us. So God in Christ, but Christ in us, that's a mystery. It's the mystery of the gospel. When we got to Ephesians, we continued. Paul continues talking about a mystery. Uh, and we talked last week about how mystery is revealed through revelation. Okay, It's not something that you can just uh, pull out a Greek New Testament or do a little Bible study and figure it out. It's actually something that the Holy Spirit shows you. He reveals it. Today we're going to continue talking about this mystery. Okay, Everybody got that? We're just going to continue. Next week, we should be done with mysteries, okay? We'll move on from the unsolved mysteries to we're going to talk about this prayer that Paul prays for Ephesians. But uh, before, as we look at the mystery uh, of the gospel today, I want to tell you about this little book. This is called, and maybe some of you have read it, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Has anyone ever heard of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay. This is a series of books called the Chronicles of Narnia. Anyone ever hear the Chronicles of Narnia? Even if you haven't read it, you've heard it? Okay. Chronicles of Narnia uh, was actually, they made, started making movies in the early 2000s. I guess it's still the early 2000s, but uh, based on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, and a few other. But the Chronicles of Narnia is a set of seven books written by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a Christian author in England in the 1900s. And uh, he was a really good writer. He, wrote, he, he didn't just write fictional, like, fantasy books like the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote great, great Christian literature like Mere Christianity and The Great Divorce and The Four Loves and A Grief Observed and a bunch of other books, probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 really good books. The Chronicles of Narnia are different in that they're, they're about this mystical made-up world where the people are half goat and half human it reminds me of jersey actually uh it's like this mystical land and you don't know are these humans or who am i dealing with here uh <laughs> i'm still i'm still going hard at jersey um chronicles of narnia would be comparable to like lord of the rings now here's the thing about the chronicles of narnia because it was written by a Christian, the, the entire thing is actually an allegory or a metaphor for Christianity. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, there, the main character actually is a lion named Aslan. This is the picture from the DVD case of the movie. A DVD, I'll explain, <laughs> is what we used to watch movies on after VHS was obsolete. So this is Aslan from the, the Chronicles of Narnia DVD case. Aslan is the good guy. Not only is Aslan the good guy, Aslan is the Christ figure in the entire Chronicles of Narnia series. Uh, there's a good guy, Aslan, but there's also a, a, a devil figure called the White Witch. Okay? 
and the White Witch is the bad guy, Aslan's the good guy, they fight against each other. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan dies. Now, they recently, well, recently, 15 years ago, made a movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I finally thought my kids were ready to watch it. And my little girl, Emma, actually loves The Chronicles of Narnia now because there's princesses and weird stuff. And So we were watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, they were loving it. And so I was thrilled to tell them, hey, guys, this, is, this movie is actually about following Jesus, and Aslan is Jesus. And they were like, really? And I was like, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a picture, it's a story about Jesus, and Aslan is Jesus. And then it got to the part where Aslan died, and Emma was just perplexed. She said, but Aslan died. She just couldn't understand, like, this is not making sense in the story. I thought he was a good guy. And I said, well, Aslan is Jesus. Do you remember whether Jesus, what happened when Jesus died? And Aiden was like, whoa. Like, <laughs> it clicked. Like, wait, if Aslan is Jesus and Aslan died, but Jesus died and came back, What's going to happen in the next scene? And sure enough, we hit play and we kept watching and Aslan comes back to life. He defeats death. He's resurrected. And man, for in that moment, especially in Aiden, but also in Emma, it clicked. Because like any good movie, the whole thing was leading up to a mystery. It was what's going to happen? You know, like we've been watching the, the characters are developing and the plot is developing, but like now we're at this critical moment. We're like, what's going to happen? I don't know. I don't understand. What could, what could possibly, how is this all going to resolve? And the answer to how the Chronicles of Narnia resolved is actually Jesus. Like the mystery of how is this story going to get fixed was the story of Jesus. And the Bible itself has actually plot lines and storylines or an ark that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And if you did not know the story of the Bible, and you had no knowledge of Jesus, and you just started reading in Genesis, you would be following the development of characters. You would be following the development of a storyline. You would find these two characters, Adam and Eve, and you would find that they were created without sin, but then they chose sin, and that God said to Eve, you're going to have an offspring. You're going to have a descendant who is going to crush that serpent under his heel. And, and you would store that away in the back of your head like, okay, that's coming. I don't know when. I don't know where. It's a mystery, but it's coming. And you would continue to read. You'd get to Abraham. And Abraham received this promise from God. Abraham uh, through your descendants, the entire world, all the nations are going to be blessed. And you would see that there's a storyline in the Bible or this plot line that God chooses Abraham and his descendants, who we call Israel. God chooses them and says, I've chosen you, but I haven't chosen you just for your benefit, but to bless all the nations, every ethnic group, every nationality, is going to be blessed, but I'm going to do it through you, whom I've chosen Israel. 
multiple promises and prophecies make it clear that God chooses Israel, but he chooses them for the purpose of blessing others. But there is still a mystery. How is this going to take place? I mean, we see God, you're saying you're going to do it, you're going to do it, but I don't know how. It's a mystery. How are you going to take Israel, who's constantly attacked by its enemies, and in battle, and in war, and even at times oppressed, how are you going to take them and bless all these other nations that they seem to be in conflict with? What's your plan? Solve this mystery. And once again, the answer to the mystery is Jesus. God is going to do it through Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every cliffhanger in the Bible. You know, like, okay, God, you said Eve is going to have a descendant that's going to crush the serpent under her heel. Who's that? Jesus. You said that this Messiah is going to come and he's going to have a kingdom and he's going to suffer and he's going to die, but he's going to come back. Who's that going to be? Jesus. You, uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they went into the burning furnace and there's three of them, but all of a sudden they see four people. Who's that fourth person? Jesus. Right. All the cliffhangers in the Bible, all the mysteries, Jesus is the, the, the answer to the mystery. So the mystery of the gospel is not an idea, it's a person. It's the person of Jesus. In Ephesians 3, Paul is talking about the mystery of the gospel. And you know, I want to make sure that we connect Ephesians 3 with Ephesians 2 because he didn't break them up as separate chapters. We break them up as separate chapters. But in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. You might remember this from a few weeks ago. I put a picture of the temple up here, and I said there was a wall here. Only Jewish people could go past this wall. If you were not Jewish, you can't go past the wall, which would be most of us. Most of us would not have been allowed in the temple. Okay? Jesus is saying he has destroyed that wall. He's destroyed the divisions. And that uh, he has established what truly, really could be called a multi-ethnic family. That his family is not just Jewish people, but it's non-Jewish people as well. It includes every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Now, really quickly, you know, I have made a commitment myself under the advice of an older, wiser pastor to only preach on issues that relate to race when it's in the text, not every time it's in the news. Because if I did it every time it was in the news, you could probably do that every week, right? If I let the news guide the preaching schedule of the church, we would only talk about three or four things all the time. I learned this from an older African-American pastor named Gary Hughes. He was part of the team of a dozen Older men, older pastors that I had to sit in front of for two hours and they grilled me, this is when I was about 24, on theology. They asked everything. Explain atonement. Give me some verses on atonement. What's the Trinity? Give me some verses on the Trinity. For two hours, I sat on one side of the table and 12 older pastors sat on the other side asking me hard questions. So I had a phone call with him, Not, I mean a few years ago, he was an older African-American pastor. I said, Gary, I mean, Reverend Hughes, that's probably what I should say. Um, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now, 
how often should we be addressing the issue of race and issues surrounding race? And this is what he told me. Don't preach the news, preach the Bible. But also understand it's in the Bible way more than you think. That, that this stuff is in the Bible way more than you think. And so I know I just like three weeks ago talked about ethnicity and race, but here we are again. I want you to know I don't pick this because I enjoy it. I enjoy preaching the Bible. This is in the Bible. This is in Ephesians. So here we go again. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> because, listen, I don't know, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand this. Ephesians 3 is right after Ephesians 2. And Ephesians 2 is truly about Jesus reconciling Jewish people and every other people. Okay? So Ephesians 3 just continues that, and it actually, the essence of the passage we're going to look at today is a multi-ethnic church displays the wisdom of God to the world. So let's read uh, Ephesians 3 here. It's just two slides. This is Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13. It says this, and this is Paul speaking. He says, to me, the very least of all saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Let me stop right there. This is how Paul identifies himself. He says, I am the very least of all saints. That's true humility, I think, coming from Paul. That's not false humility. I think Paul truly saw himself as the least of all the saints because Paul used to go around killing Christians and now he's writing the Bible. <laughs> You know, and, but I think it was real humility saying to the least of all the saints. He doesn't puff himself up and say, I'm an apostle, capital A. He, you know, he, he just says, I'm the least of all the saints in humility. He says, grace was given to preach. So here, go, here we go again. Grace is an empowerment to preach to the Gentiles. That's a word for everybody that's not Jewish. Are you guys seeing this? In humility, he's empowered by grace to preach to everyone that's not Jewish. What? The unfathomable riches of Christ. Just all the good stuff about Jesus. In fact, in the Greek, he had to make up a word for unfathomable. We have an English translation, but at that time, he had to literally make up a word for how many riches there are in Jesus. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have the boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your, glo excuse me, they are your glory. I want to focus on verse 10 today. That the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Just a half a chapter earlier, he has painted a picture of the church that includes every ethnic group. Okay, um, He's writing to the Ephesians, which is mostly a non-Jewish church, like us. Right? I don't know. Are more than 50% of you Jewish? Probably not. Right? So, He's writing to a church that would be kind of like ours. His, his understanding of the church now is that it's, it's supposed to be multi-ethnic. 
Now I'm talking about the universal big C church. Jesus' church throughout all of history and all over the world is not one ethnicity, it's multi-ethnic, right? Okay, there's, that's the way Jesus wants it actually. So he talks about it being, uh, in verse 9, uh, it has been hidden, which for ages has been hidden. So you read the Old Testament and you're like, okay, there's this mystery, there's these mysteries. How is God going to do this? He's, he's chosen Israel, but through Israel he wants to bless the whole world. How's he going to do that? You know he's going to do it, but he hasn't said how. And if you just read the Old Testament, I don't know that you would come to the conclusion that Jesus is going to create this institution called the church. It's a mystery. You actually don't get to that until the New Testament. When Jesus says in Matthew 16 and Matthew 12, he starts talking about his church. That's a new concept. It's a new creation in Jesus. It's not new to God, but it's new to us. Understand? It's a, there, there were communities of faith, there were synagogues, there were local fellowships, but they were largely based around ethnicity. The idea of a community of faith that is not based on ethnicity, but is instead based on the person of Jesus, is a new idea that Jesus pioneered. And so that's the picture of the church that he paints. When it talks about the manifold wisdom of God, manifold is such a strange word, isn't it? Uh, you know, no one uses manifold in, in their discussion. You know, like if I said to my wife, hey, how was your day? She'd say, oh, my day was difficult for manifold reasons. Like, no one talks like that, except maybe Abby Akinaso might talk like that. Manifold just means variety or multifaceted, okay? So ma the word manifold, I, I think there's also a part of your car called the man manifold as well. But I don't even know why it's called that, so... A manifold just means a variety or a multifa uh, multifaceted reason. So why was Kendra's day hard? For a variety of reasons, and I'm sure I'm going to hear all of them. And I'm probably one of them. <laughs> the manifold wisdom of God is the multifaceted wisdom of God. It's that God's not wise just from one perspective or two perspectives. God's wise in every way. God is all wise. Wisdom originates with God. Wisdom is not some concept that is outside of God that he pulls to himself. Wisdom is inside of God. In fact, read Proverbs. He uses personification to illustrate wisdom. He talks about wisdom cries out in the streets. Wisdom is in the street. That's it, I mean, wisdom is in the streets. There's actually it's street smarts. It's practical, and so uh, he personifies wisdom because wisdom exists in God. It's not a concept outside of God that he appropriates to himself. So God is all wise, and His wisdom is multifaceted. The imagery here is a little bit like a diamond. If you look at a diamond from one angle, you see how beautiful it is. You barely have to turn it before you have a totally new view of it. You say, oh, I like it from this angle too. And then you turn, tweak it. I like it from this angle. I like it from this angle. That's what God's wisdom is. Like, well, if I look at it from this perspective, God looks pretty wise. But if I look at it from this perspective, God still looks pretty wise. 
Let me look at it first. Yeah, still wise. Okay, I get it, God. You're wise. I don't have to think about every angle. I trust you, God. You're wise, right? The, multi, or the manifold wisdom of God is the wisdom that's wise from every perspective. No matter how you look at it, it's wise. But here's the problem we have. We don't look at things from every perspective, right? I mean, we're just human. I, I don't even know that we have the capacity to do that if we wanted to. We look at things from our perspective. And what this passage is talking about particularly is the church making God's wisdom known so that the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That multifaceted wisdom of God is supposed to be on display for the world to see through who? Us. Right? What's his picture of the church? Multi-ethnic. The multifaceted wisdom of God is on display for the world to see through the multi-ethnic church of Jesus. You understand? So, I mean, just to be really practical, I look at things through a few perspectives. The perspectives that my experiences and training and upbringing have led me to look at things. But it's really helpful for me to have someone who sees things from a different perspective. Understand? Because they see truth about God that sometimes I'm just blind to for one reason or another. I'm going to come back to that concept in a little bit. But the multifaceted wisdom of God is demonstrated through the multi-ethnic church to the spiritual realm. I want to just share two really brief uh, quotes that I found as I was preparing this week. The first is from the Christ-Centered Exposition Commentary. It says, God's grace and glory are displayed in a, di in a diverse people, a many-colored fellowship, a multicultural and multi-ethnic fellowship who have been called, redeemed, forgiven, made alive, and united in Christ. And then along those same lines is the Zondervan Study Bible. It says, given God's incredible work of reconciling two hostile groups into one organic body, the church is the perfect means to display God's wisdom. Insofar as the church exists as a spiritually united, multi-ethnic community, it accomplishes this task. This is just saying that one of the reasons the church exists, one of the roles of the church, is to show the world God's wisdom. And we do that as a multi-ethnic community focused on Jesus. And I love the, the risk that this committee of people took when they said, insofar as the church exists as a spiritually united multi-ethnic community, it accomplishes this task, which I think is their polite way of saying, we don't always do this well. When we don't exist as a spiritually united multi-ethnic community, we do not fulfill this. When we are a divided or homogenous, everybody's the same, community, we don't do this well, but only when we're united and diverse. Does that make sense? Now, that's them saying it, not me, but I think they're right. So how does, a multi, how does Jesus' worldwide intergenerational multi-ethnic church display God's wisdom? It does it in a variety of ways. One, it models reconciliation. Listen, uh, ever since Adam and Eve's kids fought to the death when Cain killed Abel, 
There's been division. I mean, even when Adam said, that woman you gave me, you know, that's the first time someone points a finger. Cain killed Abel. Then they built the Tower of Babel and scattered over language. They started creating their own gods. And it's just been division and discord ever since. So for Jesus to say, but my people are ministers of reconciliation. My people don't prioritize the stuff they're going to split over. They prioritize me who they're going to unite over. Does that make sense? So we model reconciliation. The world will not model reconciliation for us. And they're, they're trying desperately. But they can't even agree on how to reconcile. So it's just not, it's not working. But the church, and the church doesn't always do well with this either, but the church has Jesus as our model for the priority of reconciliation and how we can sit with people that are different than us and love, and love them. Um, reconciliation requires a couple things. First, it requires that the guilty party take responsibility, and it requires that the offended party forgive. A lot of times we expect only the offended party to forgive, but the guilty party never takes responsibility. Or sometimes we want the offended party to take responsibility. Uh, sorry, we want the guilty party to take responsibility, and the offended party is not prepared to forgive. You need both of those in order for reconciliation to take place. Does that make sense? It's, you can't have one or the other, because that won't be reconciliation. So... We model reconciliation that displays the wisdom of God to the world. We also model unity without uniformity. Uniformity is not the same thing as unity. Uh, we want unity, but we all don't have to look the same, act the same, dress the same, be the same. I think that sometimes it's possible that churches and communities actually achieve uniformity and think it's unity. Well, we all like the same books. We all like the same music. We look the same. We dress the same. We're the same age. We like the same things. We like the same food. Look at the unity. I'll tell you what, that, that is unity based on you. That is unity based on your preferences. That is unity based on your comfort level. It's not unity based on Jesus. It's a shallow uniformity is what that is. We want unity. We do not need uniformity. Amen. Another way that the, uh, a multi-ethnic church demonstrates God, God's wisdom is by modeling honor. Now, I said this a few weeks ago, but I, I think this is a lesson for our church, like a long-term lesson for our church. It is, I think, impossible to expect every person to understand every subtle nuance about every cultural or ethnic practice um, it's I think it's unrealistic to expect that so what's better is for us to practice honor to one another and it's okay to say I don't understand everything but I respect you I honor you I'll give you an example that makes me look like an idiot I cannot tell the difference between an empanada and a pastelillo. <laughs> I've tried for years. <laughs> Here's what I do to show honor. 
When I'm with someone that calls it an empanada, I call it an empanada. <laughs> when I'm with someone that calls it a pastelillo, I call it a pastelillo. I'm told there's differences. I believe you. I just don't know what they are. I love them both. I'll take half a dozen of each. You know, I, there's no complaint. Okay, so we, we have a uni unity on that. Now, that, that's just a silly little illustration, though, of I'm not going to have a fight over what word to use. I'm going to just show honor to who I'm in the presence of. Does that make sense? Um, we don't have to pick and fight over the subtleties and the nuances if we just show honor and we show respect and we defer to people. Um, so we, we, show, we demonstrate God's wisdom by modeling reconciliation, by modeling unity without uniformity, by modeling honor. And we demonstrate it by also uh, acknowledging that both in our own personal cultures but also in the cultures of others, there are parts that God uses and redeems but there are also parts of culture that God, and through Scripture, absolutely confronts. That culture is not morally neutral. Some cultural things can be sinful, other cultural things can be redeemed, and God uses them. I'll give you an example, but I'll use my culture, because if I use another culture, I know how that's going to come across. I'll use good old Western Pennsylvanian white culture, okay? In my culture, we love us some sarcasm. Particularly, I, I love being passive-aggressive. I grew up that way. That's part of our culture, and I just think it's great. But I'm also learning from those of you that don't appreciate sarcasm that it's sinful a lot of times. Oh, okay, Gene, I get it. I, mean, I, already, I already admitted it. The passive-aggressive, the sarcasm, that, you know, that, that can be sinful, you know, occasionally. Or most of the time. Um, and that's something I have to just acknowledge. That's part of my upbringing and culture. That does not mean it's right, though. But on the flip side, there are other parts of my culture that I know are biblical and godly, and I don't want to throw those out. So that's not just true of me, though. That's true of all of us, right? We, we all have things in our culture that are sinful, and we, we don't just say, well, that's our culture. Nope, nope. I, I have to repent of things in mine, and everyone else has to repent of things in theirs. But that doesn't mean we throw out the redeemable parts of culture. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, every culture has values and practices some can be redeemed and they reveal a heavenly culture. Others need to be repented of because ultimately when we get to heaven, it's not going to be my culture or your culture or their culture. It's going to be a brand new culture that we're all going to be a little culture shocked by. You know, you know what I mean? Okay. I wonder if the reason that things happen 24-7 in heaven is because no one, none of the you know, white people like me can complain about, like, we didn't start on time. <laughs> like, well, it's around the clock. There is no on time, you know? Um, okay, let's make sure that gets cut out of the recording. 
I know that, that I have seen God's wisdom and I have learned about God and I have become a better Christian by being part of a multi-ethnic local church. So Jesus' global universal church, it's multi-ethnic. No doubt about it, right? I mean, I've been on almost every continent. I've been, I've worshipped with on, in, in Asia with Christians, uh, Latin America, uh, Europe, um, North America, South America. Man, it's, it's diverse. Uh, Africa. I was, oh yeah, okay, all right. Oh man, I, I was rocked by that trip. They didn't, they were like, what's this dude's problem? What, why are his hands always in his pocket? Uh, Jesus' uh, church is multi-ethnic. That's the big picture. So how about in the smaller microcosm, how about the local expression? Not every church is multi-ethnic. There are a lot of reasons for that. Some are more uh, permissible than others. Some are very vile reasons. Others are just circumstantial reasons. Regardless of all that, our church is multi-ethnic. And I know that I am a better Christian now because of it. Because for 10 years, I've been worshiping alongside and studying alongside and praying alongside people who see the other facets of God's wisdom. They look at God and they see things about him that I'm blind to. Or they look at the Bible or they look at ministry and they see stuff that is not just a difference of opinion but actually true. And I say, I never noticed that before. I never thought about that. And it makes me a more biblical, better Christian. An example that I used in the first service. Almost every Sunday... Kervin and Israel come up and recap the sermon with me after I preach. I did, that is not how I grew up. And I appreciate it. Now, I appreciate it from like two people. I don't need a whole line of people. But listen, what that tells me is they're listening, they're understanding, and they appreciate the ministry. You know, that, and it's a, it's a way of honoring authority and leadership that I did not necessarily grow up with. So I see that and I, I think now I should honor people that God has put in my life that instruct me. So I, I've learned that from them. Um, you know, I've learned a lot about hospitality from May Newcomer because I'm not generally hospitable. Uh, <laughs> But I've learned from May what it means to create a welcoming environment where people's walls come down and they're willing to interact and learn and pray and sing and do all that other stuff. Um, Rachel, do you mind leaving the room? So we had a, few, a problem a few, well, not a problem. We had a period of time a few years ago where we needed some additional staff, and Rachel Yee volunteered to serve on our staff. Well, we paid her, but I mean, not barely anything. And she served on our staff, and I learned so much about how to respond in love first when things were tough. And we used to fight over love. It was so frustrating because I wanted judgment. 
I wanted to bring the hammer down. And Rachel was always like, well, but shouldn't you love them? I'm like, where do you get this? And uh, she kept throwing herself in the way of the hammer to the point where I had to stop dropping the hammer. But I appreciate, now I appreciate that. I can't say I appreciate it at the time. But I know now that it was the right thing. And it's actually made me change my attitude and behavior. You can listen now, Rachel. I know you were listening the whole time anyway. Uh, it's made me change my behavior. And even though I think that uh, when it comes to their home life, Kevin is always right. In this situation, Rachel was right once. Okay, I did you a favor. But the, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that I've become a better Christian. I've actually seen how wise God is by observing it in the context of a multi-ethnic church. And I hope I'm not the only person that's had that experience. I don't think I am. I believe that many of you have seen your brothers and sisters in Christ of different backgrounds worship God in different ways that have not just challenged you, but inspired you and encouraged you. And what it really does, it doesn't make God look wise, because he already is wise. It reveals or demonstrates the wisdom of God. So, let me transition to communion. Uh, communion is an incredible opportunity for us to fellowship with others. Jesus gave us communion to be celebrated not you know, simply in isolation or by ourselves, but with other people. And we're going to do communion a little bit different today. Uh, I want to ask John McManus and Glenn Miller... If they would come up front, they're going to help me with communion. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up too and hop up on stage. So, in a moment, I'm going to ask Glenn to read from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29, and then I'm going to have John pray for us. But let me explain what we're going to do here. We do communion. We serve it about once a month. As Glenn is going to read, the bread represents Jesus' body and the grape juice represents Jesus' blood. Normally when we serve communion, what we do is you come up the middle aisle and you stand by yourself. Maybe you bring a spouse or something or your child, but generally people take communion in a single file line by themselves here. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. And I'm going to ask those of you that are seated on this side of the room to come up through the outer aisle and come to this side of the table. And those of you that are on this side of the room to come up through that outer aisle and come to this side of the table so that when you're taking communion, you're facing one of your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Now, I'm not going to make you... Okay, all right, that's good. Well, we'll see who you get paired up with, all right? <laughs> Listen, this is introvert-approved. You don't have to pray with them. You don't have to go out to lunch with them. But, you know, but here's what would be appropriate. Acknowledge them. You know, give them a little nod. Uh, something like that. Uh, you don't have to get in groups and pray for 45 minutes. But when you come up, you're going to have to at least figure out who's dipping in the cup. You know, you're, there is going to have to be some sort of interaction that takes place between the two of you. So the way we do communion at True Vine is you're going to come up again 
this side or this side. Uh, the bread represents Jesus' body. You'll take a piece of that. You'll dip it in the grape juice, which represents Jesus' blood. You're welcome to return to your seat. There's also plenty of room up here if you'd like to pray at the altar, and you can do that. The worship team's going to lead us in a song, and I'll dismiss you after that. But uh, we want to take our time with this. Glenn, would you mind reading nice and loud? I don't have a microphone for you. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. And John, would you mind praying for us nice and loud when Glenn's done? Yes. All right, thank you. I want to I encourage you for uh, the way we took communion this morning. Some of you were very creative in making sure everybody had somebody to take communion with, and I really appreciate that. Um, I wish you were around when I was not prom. Uh, <laughs> Listen. So, <laughs> so listen. Um, even just watching that, it reminded me, God, you are so wise. The way I mean, Jesus, God, you said you were gonna crush Satan under the foot of your uh, of Eve's descendant, and you said you were gonna reconcile, and you said you were gonna bless the whole world through Israel. But we had no idea how you were gonna do that. It was a mystery to us, but now we see that it was through Jesus that you were going to do all that. So, Lord, we bless you for your wisdom. And I ask that it would be on display, not just here for a couple minutes on a Sunday, but on display for the world to see your wisdom. Through our actions, through our advice, through our prayers, Jesus, through our homes, through the way we serve at work and in our community, display your wisdom through us. And I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.